My fetish originates from puberty. It originates from the time when the kids in my class were transitioning from wearing white briefs into boxers. I was just completely fascinated by that transition in the locker room. There was something about that that just like stuck out and became a fetish over the years to the point that like it's all I ever wore. What I continue to be fascinated by as a sex therapist is how getting to know my clients through the lens of sexuality, whether they're talking about a kink or a fetish, it gives access to a richer and deeper understanding of their life story and also provides them with a deeper understanding of themselves. People can develop sexual interest towards pretty much anything. For example, someone may experience a heightened sense of arousal towards body parts like armpits or feet, while other people might get aroused by things like shoes, nylons, or even tidy whities I think it was around the time that I started high school that I was like, you know what, I'm going to commit full time to wearing briefs because it turned me on. I met Milo last winter at the Dan Savage Amateur Erotic Film Festival called Humpfest. Milo starred in the documentary film, The Boy with the Tidy Whities. It's a film that was selected out of hundreds of submissions and was chosen to be showcased all across the world. I think I was only expecting, in my mind, maybe 40, 50 people would have showed up and it like looked pretty much sold out in the theater. Now, although this wasn't Milo's first rodeo, because he has a successful OnlyFans page and has also shot porn before, but it was the first time that he showed the more intimate side of himself and of his kink on the big screen in front of hundreds of people. Then it was just like the pure embarrassment of, oh no, everyone in this theater is going to see my fetish. We talked about a career that he had before he got into OnlyFans and shooting porn. He was a politician. I've always had a passion for community service and over time that evolved to a lot of advocacy work and policy work. Eventually, I decided that I wanted to run for office, and I won. Milo tells a story of how running for public office helped to accelerate his process with coming out as gay. Because I had an election in a few months, I was like, well, if I'm going to be gay, I might as well be definitively gay and decide now and just like, because we have a campaign to focus on and I will not be one of those people that's like, am I gay? Why did Milo leave politics for porn? It paid a whole lot more than he was being paid in politics. It was a lot of work, a huge commitment for very little return. I was only getting paid like 14 grand a year for a job that was like 40 hours a week. And then on top of having people yell at me all the time for things that weren't my fault. <laughs> While Milo felt really proud about his political career, his entrepreneurial spirit pushed him towards something much more personal and enticing. Meanwhile, I'm wanting to prioritize my gay renaissance, my party phase, my self-exploration phase that had been put on hold all these years because I was closeted and wanted to focus on my career. And so Milo entered his sexual renaissance. He went to therapy. He started to come to terms with being gay accepting that he had sexual interests that were kinky. And then, like all successful entrepreneurs do, he made a career out of it. I'm happy to say that I am now making more than I was in politics as, as a porn star. So. 
Here's my conversation with Milo Miles. I was at the Dan Savage Humpfest that was just in Toronto 2023. Humpfest is a film festival where they show erotic videos of real people who have filmed what excites them when it comes to sex. And your film, The Boy in the Tidy Whities, for real, was my favorite. Oh, thank you. I wondered what it was like for you to watch your film in a theater full of people. Well, I mean, it was definitely an experience to remember. I made the film with a friend who approached me last fall saying, hey, I want to submit a movie to the Savage Film Festival. I didn't think much of it. I didn't take it too seriously. We didn't really know what we were going to record. All we knew was that he was going to show up and we were just going to film something. So I spoke from the heart, not thinking that it was going to go anywhere. Like I didn't even bother shaving that morning. So I had a little beard going. And so we come over and we just start recording. And I spoke to my experience with Tidy Whities and why it's a fetish and why it's a turn on. My fetish, it originates from puberty. It originates from the time that I started having my sexual awakening. And at the time I was closeted, but I was definitely attracted to other boys. And it was at a time when the kids in my class were transitioning from wearing white briefs, which is typically what their moms bought them, into boxers. I was just completely fascinated by that transition in the locker room. I loved keeping track of like which of my classmates are still wearing the tidy whities and which weren't. And there was also a little bit of teasing that would happen around that too, right? The kids that wore the boxers would kind of like gang up on the kids that still wore tidy whities. And there was something about that just, that just like stuck out and just became a fetish over the years to the point that like it's all I ever wore. When you saw that transition, you stayed in your briefs. I did fall for the peer pressure and tried boxers a few times. So there was maybe like one or two years where I tried different pairs of underwear, but I always had briefs in the drawer. And I I think it was around the time that I started high school that I was like, you know what, I'm going to commit full time to wearing briefs because it turned me on. Yeah. It turned me on walking down the hallway at school, knowing that like I was still wearing tidy whities and I was trying to figure out who was still wearing briefs. And it was my way of expressing my sexuality at a time when there was so much internalized homophobia and sexual oppression that I was creating for myself. Yeah. So created like a little gateway to express that. So that was during puberty. It was your own little secret. It was the way that you were able to express your sexuality. And then how did you navigate going from a place of being closeted and having this secret sort of way of expressing yourself to the point of then having that realization that people really do get quite hard on themselves and there's so much shame around their sexuality. What was your leap into a new way of thinking about it? Therapy definitely helped a lot. I went through a period a few years ago where I probably did like 10 years worth of like personal growth and development without therapy within the span of like a year and a half, which was great because it helped me unpack a lot of childhood trauma and insecurities and helped me understand and process why my brain worked in certain ways, why I reacted in certain ways to certain things. And of course, it was a therapist that was very sex positive And I think was also considered a sex therapist as one of their areas of expertise. So it was nice to 
have that conversation and unpack it. But truth be told, I guess I came out when I was 23. For me, the journey was very much coming out as gay, step one, to myself and to my family. And then step two is what I consider or call a gay renaissance. And I, a lot of my friends I, I see going through their own kind of versions of gay renaissance. And it's really when you take the time to figure out your place in the community. For me, it meant socializing with a lot of other queer people. It meant going into my party phase. It meant exploring the more slutty side of my sexuality and having all these sexual experiences in an effort to kind of figure out what I was into, what I wasn't into, what worked, what didn't work. But an important component of that was also just maintaining and establishing social relationships with queer friends. So I would say I started my gay renaissance about two and a half years ago, right after the pandemic. And as I started being exposed to different people and characters and friends from all walks of life, I started hanging out with people that were in the porn industry. I would hang out with sex workers. I would hang out with people that worked at Starbucks or had very reputable professions uh, and were quite successful there, whether they be policy analysts or politicians. And I started realizing that nothing is as you know clear and, and cut or even just black and white as I thought it would be. And it really helped me on top of the therapy consider a future where I would maybe be more open about my sexuality. And that took me down the path where I started being open to the idea of, of doing porn. And they say that you should do what you love, that you should monetize things that you're good at. If it's something that you really enjoy, then it never really feels like work. But also with that, was just, I guess, just feeling comfortable in my own skin and, and wanting to do what I wanted to do and putting myself first and uh, knowing that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what other people think. It's really what you think and how comfortable you are doing it. Yeah. And there's also that element of really putting yourself out there, seeing how other people live, seeing what turns people on what makes them happy. It helps you to insert more information, I think, into your own sexual narrative, right? Because sometimes we have this sexual narrative of what it means to be sexual, right? And often that is things that you've learned growing up around what is okay and what's not okay and what's like healthy sexuality. And for you, it was very much having that exposure, really immersing yourself into queer culture allowed you then to start to insert that information and change your narrative to a narrative that likely it sounds like involved less shame around who you are. I helped to surround myself with a lot of sex positive individuals with just a variety of interests because it created a safe space for me to explore my sexuality in a way that had minimal judgment, minimal consequence, and just made me feel comfortable to you know, figure out what I was into and what I wasn't into to the point that I am now expressing it publicly because I want people to also feel comfortable in their own skin and know that, you know, it used to be that feet were like the main fetish that people were kind of like, oh, that's interesting, but anything could be a fetish. And, it blows my mind constantly finding out about these things. And Even if you share a fetish, <laughs> there's multiple layers to them that might be different for two different people, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Growing 
growing up, what were some of the values and ideas around sex and sexuality that impacted how you viewed yourself as a sexual being? Mm. It's a complicated question because until my gay renaissance started, I still subscribed to a lot of the heteronormative expectations that are kind of grounded in you uh, from a young age. And it was very difficult to unpack those, to dismantle them, and then kind of recreate my own narrative. When you add that to the immigrant experience that I had, where we come from a country in South America that is still a bit more conservative than we are here. In my mind, they're about 20 or 30 years behind where we are now from a social progress perspective. So I had a lot of that to unpack as well, especially, you know, my parents, because I moved around a lot. I had a very precarious upbringing. I didn't have a lot of stability when it came to social relationships or mentors. So the only individuals that I had that I could consistently look up to were my parents who still had a lot of those more conservative-rooted ideology where it was not okay to be gay. It was not okay to express your sexuality. The only sexuality that was permitted was within the context of you dating a woman at a young age, which I think is probably why I kind of burrowed myself into this sexual hole of obscurity where I just didn't I was living a double life. There was the person that I was projecting myself as day-to-day, straight, Milo, versus the person that would, you know, right before bed, would watch porn and jerk off to mostly gay porn. I tried straight porn just to see if I liked it, but I always just went back to the gay porn where I would read stories about tidy whities <laughs> And that would be my primary source of spank bank material. But, you know, there would also be people that would use, like, Yahoo Questions was a thing back then. It was, like, an early version of what Reddit eventually became. And, I, you know, you'd kind of just use Google and find little stories or snippets here and there that involved tidy whities But nowadays, there's, like, a lot of things out there from... There's all whole communities on Reddit that are dedicated to tidy whitey where from supporting each other to transitioning back to tidy whities It's kind of like fetishizing why people are into it or why they find them attractive. There's a little bit for everyone, and it's a very welcoming environment now. When you were talking about being an immigrant, coming from South America, when you talk about belief systems in Colombia, what is the majority belief system in terms of religion? Mm -hmm. Predominantly Roman Catholic. I think it's like 95% Roman Catholic or something like that, or it was when they did some kind of statistic uh, in like the 90s. So it was just traditionally cultural. Yeah. And so was there a part of you that assimilated to that more heteronormative way of being as a bit of a cover to just even for safety and to navigate through the world for a time in your life? Yeah, absolutely. Especially with that precarious upbringing too, it was difficult to move schools constantly. So yeah, I definitely put a lot of effort into creating like this social character that people saw, but it was very difficult for me to take down some of those barriers and to let people in. But also like school and high school are challenging years. And I got bullied for being gay, despite not being openly gay or even considering myself to be gay in school. And I suspect that would have been a lot worse if I had actually been a bit more open with my sexuality or even my entire personality in general. Are you okay if I ask you about what you mean by precarious upbringing? Uh, I say precarious upbringing because I moved around a lot. So I went to like eight different schools before I even went to university. Why was that? Um, 
I think it's part of the immigrant experience for a variety of reasons. When we first landed in Canada, uh, it, a lot of it was tied to housing too. So we moved around a lot uh, just because either my parents would start making a bit more money so we can move from one cockroach infested place to a less cockroach infested apartment building. And it was also uh, you know, my parents divorced at, at one point too. So then it was almost like we started over for a second time. I was being raised by a single mother. We experienced hidden homelessness. We lived in a woman's shelter in Burlington. So we kind of like moved around a lot. And it just meant that I changed schools a lot as well. How do you think that that's impacted who you are today and how you view yourself, how you view the world, how you take on the world? It's definitely made me a lot more resilient when it comes to how I approach certain challenges it's also given me the benefit of perspective when it comes to realizing that the things that you know, stress me out or that I'm worried about usually aren't that much worth stressing out about. It's also given me a gift of having a strong social personality to make friends and, and that sort of thing because of the different environments that I was put in. So it, yeah, it overall made me more resilient, but it, it now means that what I crave is stability or social stability. And it's important to me to kind of focus on the relationships that I have with friends and building those and strengthening those long-term so that, because it's nice to stay in one place for more than a couple of years, as it turns out. Yeah. And what was the coming out experience like then for you with your family? I would categorize it almost in, in two parts. There was coming out to myself and then there was coming out to everyone else. Coming out to myself was a treacherous journey where I was living that double life, right? Looking back now, there was certainly a lot of evidence that I was gay. I remember my first crush was when I was in fifth grade. I remember sexualizing tidy whities and fetishizing them was definitely uh, a big uh, clue. But the logical side of me refused to even entertain the idea of being queer. So it was kind of like this battle between emotion and logic. And over time, emotion overtook the desire to have sexual intercourse with men. So I, I discovered Craigslist. And that's where I would kind of like find some sexual partners while I was an undergrad. And that's how I started kind of like exploring with other guys. And then at some point, it just overtook the logical side. And I was forced to kind of like entertain the possibility that I was gay. I think what kind of sped up the process for me was that at the time I decided to run for public office. And because I had an election in a few months, I was like, well, if I'm going to be gay, I might as well be definitively gay and decide now. And just like, it is what it is because we have a campaign to focus on. And I will not be one of those people that's like, am I gay? I don't want to be a closeted politician. So right. I came out to myself and then I streamlined the process to my friends and family. And I was like, this is it. And then focused on my professional career. But I essentially put on hold the personal growth and development that comes with exploring my sexuality and, and what it meant to be gay because I was focused more on my career. And it wasn't until after the election that I was able to say, okay, what is this gay thing? Thus began the gay renaissance. So you ran for public office. Mm -hmm. Please, mm -hmm. do you mind expanding on that a little bit? I, I ran for office shortly after coming out to myself and my family and friends. I've always had a passion for community service. And over time, that evolved to a lot of advocacy work and policy work where I worked with different advisory boards and committees and Eventually, I decided that I wanted to run for office and I ran for a local school board in Ontario. 
and I won. I won the election and I held that position for four years. The gay renaissance started in year two of my term in office and a series of experiences on top of the therapy that I was doing and and all the relationships that I was having helped form my decision to not seek re-election, but also transition from a career in politics to a career in the porn industry. What made you decide that that was going to be your next career? I think I went into a career in politics partly because I was craving validation and recognition that I wasn't getting at the time. I wanted to prove myself that I could do this and that. And I loved it. I I think I did a great job. I uh, was able to influence and impact a lot of change in policy at at the education level. But ultimately, it was a lot of work, a huge commitment for very little return. I was only getting paid like 14 grand a year for a job that was like 40 hours a week on top of also being in grad school. So, and then on top of having people yell at me all the time for things that weren't my fault, (laughs) it just wasn't the vibe. It wasn't the vibe. It was stressful. And meanwhile, I'm wanting to prioritize my gay renaissance, my party phase, my self-exploration phase that had been put on hold all these years because I was closeted and wanted to focus on my career. So there was kind of like a change where uh, I wanted to no longer put others first, but I wanted to put myself first a little bit. I would say that there's a bit of entrepreneurial spirit in politics that also exists as someone that that works in the porn industry. And I think, honestly, I was in Puerto Vallarta one year, and Ontario had just gone back into lockdown during the pandemic. Everyone was staying, though, because they were either working remotely or they were a porn star and they could just work wherever they wanted and travel wherever they wanted to and hours were flexible. So I think I just enjoyed the novelty of being able to control my own hours and essentially start your own business because it is your own business. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm now making more than I was in politics. As, as star, so <laughs> it's paying the bills and I'm able to yeah. catch up on sleep. We need to go back to the coming out to your family. You've come out to them and and now you have more of a public facing persona that involves you being a porn star and also an, having your own OnlyFans. How did your parents, who it sounds like came from more of a conservative background and how they saw relationships and sexuality, how, how did they take it all in? They took it better than I expected. And I suspect it has something to do with the fact that after living in Canada for all these years, after a while, the progressive nature of being in a progressive social country kind of like rubs off on them. But it was still a challenge. Like when I told my mom, I got her a bunch of books, which I think are on the shelf because I wanted her to read these books if she had any questions. I didn't want her to find her own information on the website. So like this book is gay or just books for parents with gay children sort of thing. So I gave her that, but it was still a challenge because after I told her that I was gay, she asked me, are you a woman now? Was her question. And that kind of like made me realize, oh, you don't actually know what LGBT means or, you know, what is gay. So there was a learning curve there. With my dad, it was like, he kind of like heard the information, accepted it, and is still probably unpacking it slowly, but took the information and that's it. He didn't say much else. Yeah. So. And how do they feel about your shift from politics to porn? I told my mom, my mom was the first to know. Uh, she's fine with it. No concerns. I mean, they, they, you know, they know that I'm a smart kid. They're not too concerned. I told my dad more recently and he thinks it's just a phase, but we'll see. 
you transitioned into porn and then you also are an OnlyFans personality. What is that like for you? It was that part of going to Puerto Vallarta just realizing, oh, wow, I can go into this industry and these are the different ways that I could monetize. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. I met a, a few people who were successful in the industry and OnlyFans is one of the more popular avenues for, I guess, creating your own content and, and having people subscribe to your page for a more consistent form of revenue. So that was one of the first things I did. Uh, I did that last year. And it was quite the learning curve because I'm still, at the time, I was very bad at social media. Marketing was not my forte. Video editing was new to me. How do you sell yourself on a website that facilitates people purchasing or accessing your videos, which was different from selling myself as a candidate at the door. So there was quite a learning curve, but it was nice to start it out and, and figure it out as I went. And then working with other content creators to film collabs and stuff like that. So I started with an OnlyFans until I finished my uh, master's degree and until I finished my term in office. Once I finished those two things last summer, that's when I fully shifted my focus towards content creation and also studio porn as a way to kind of complement that. And it was, it was fun. It's been fun. You know, at the time I was, how do I justify people subscribing when I didn't have that much content? So at the time, my focus was more on content rather than quality. Now I'm in a position where, okay, now I'm focusing a lot more on the quality of the content that I'm sharing. And it's been rewarding. It's an art form. You're building something and you're watching it grow and you're watching the monetization grow as well, which is a lot of fun. But ultimately, it's more fun than it is work. And I'm having sex with great people that I'm really happy to be having sex with. <laughs> When it comes to the OnlyFans part, what does OnlyFans look like when it comes to representation? I mean, OnlyFans is, represents an evolution of porn that evolved from studio porn over to more individually fan-created content. It exploded during the pandemic when suddenly there was a much larger market of content creators, but also people that were taking it in. Before OnlyFans, in my mind, exploded, Tumblr was one of the most popular ways for people to watch porn on the internet, outside from going on Pornhub. When Tumblr no longer became a thing, Twitter kind of took over. Uh, so there's a big pornographic community on Twitter that supported OnlyFans and the growth of OnlyFans. Um, what I like about OnlyFans is that anyone can have an OnlyFans. And from my perspective, it seems to be a very diverse platform where any fetish that you find on the internet, you will find on OnlyFans, or you can find someone that has a tidy whitey fetish or has this or that. To me, it seems well represented, but it's hard to tell. I mean, my focus has mostly been on North America subscribers, so I haven't you know, gone that ventured out that much, but there are a lot of successful content creators that have an OnlyFans in South America, in Europe, and in a lot of other countries as well and continents. So I think it's well represented. I was also wondering if your OnlyFans page, if there are specific genres that you stick to, is this where you will then bring in your fetish for men's briefs or? Do you kind of do whatever? It's a little bit of both. It's a debate that I've been struggling with since I started working in the porn industry because some of the most successful content creators on OnlyFans are people who are able to create 
a very specific niche or work with a very specific niche and build an audience around that. My challenge has been that I've traditionally had a broad spectrum of things that I'm into. And in order for this not to feel like work, I want to incorporate multiple aspects of my sexuality in my OnlyFans. Yes, primarily it's tidy whities That tends to be one of the centerpieces in all the videos that I record or all the collabs that I do. There's always tidy whities in one way or form on top of more dedicated tidy whitey fetish videos. But ultimately, it has a little bit of everything that represents me and my sexuality and everything that I'm into. And that's important to me too, because I want to be true to myself. I want to be authentic and honest. Yes, this is a show for other people, but at the end of the day, it's my show and it's coming from the heart and my sexuality. So it's important to me that if it is more difficult to create a stronger fan base, long-term, it'll happen. But short-term, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. When it comes to relationships, what are your thoughts around that? How do you feel about the idea of getting into a relationship with another guy? Is that part of what you're also wanting to experience? 100%. Around the time that my, my gay renaissance started, I had this realization that I don't have a good understanding of what it means to be in a relationship or what it means to be in relationships with friends. I never had good mentors at that because, again, I was raised by a single mom who arguably didn't have the most successful outcomes in, in her relationships. Because I moved around so much, I also didn't have friendships that lasted more than like a year or two or that were more than just a friend on Facebook. So it was difficult for me to kind of grasp that concept I wanted to, and uh, what so what I decided to do was I decided to prioritize making friends. I knew that I was good at making friends, but keeping friends is a whole other story. And so I just made sure that that was one of my strategic personal priorities two years ago, which is I, I want to make friends. I want to make good friends. And once I find them, I want to kind of like harness that friendship and build it almost like a little plant that you water and you nurture. So nurturing social friendships has been my main priority. Let's focus on friends first. And then when the opportunity comes, I think that's when I'll branch out to a more one-to-one relationship using the information and knowledge that I learned when it came to like harnessing the, the other friendships to kind of like inform how I can be a good partner down the road. Listening to your story of how you got to where you are today, it makes me think of a lot of people who are also really struggling, number one, with their sexuality or their gender journey, but also really feel so much fear and shame around things that interest them sexually. Many of those fears are around job security, right? What if people find out that I'm into this thing or find out that I'm gay and it could ruin my career, right? And continue to live in that really tight box of not being able to live authentically. What would you say to people that you think would be helpful who may have been exactly where you were? not that long ago. I'd see that therapy helps, right? Everyone should be doing therapy. And even if you don't think you need it, therapy is still extremely helpful. What I find to be also very important is to surround yourself with the right people. 
with the right friends. When your social circles are not toxic, when they are supportive and create a safe environment, it creates almost like a foundation for you to have the capacity to take risks, to branch out and to really explore whatever it is you want to explore. When I look at my life trajectory, I never expected to go from a career in politics to a career in sex work through porn. And it definitely has made me appreciate the legitimacy of, of sex work that I think a lot of people don't don't understand. I think there's still a lot of misconceptions or stereotypes for people who work in the industry. And I think that if there's anything that we can do to kind of make it more safe environment for people to work in, a more welcoming environment, anything that we can do to normalize the industry too, I think is is helpful, especially at a time when LGBT rights are coming under attack across the world. This is the time to work together. Milo, where can people find you? Instagram's probably the best place. Mm-hmm. Milo underscore Miles underscore official. But I'm shadow banned, so you have to type it exactly <sighs> as that and then go into accounts. And then it's the very last profile that comes up. Thank you so much, Milo, for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. That was my conversation with Milo Miles. I think it's important to say that most people who experience fetishes and kinks are very well adjusted and can have fun with this part of their sexuality without causing any problems. Kinks and fetishes are only considered a problem if they're done in non-consensual ways or if they pose an unacceptable level of risk to themselves or others or if the fetish or kink is causing severe psychological distress or impairments. This show is produced by Vocal Fry Studios. If you have show ideas or a question you want me to answer in an episode, email me at michelle at getsome.ca. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at getsome underscore podcast. You'll get insights on sex and sexuality, dating tips, and behind the scenes between episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>